In conclusion, this book, while excellent in its analysis overall, is to bring together the theories and methods of two different fields of study, social history, detailed enough so that more seasoned researchers will find I'm Robert Castanello. I'm the Vice President of Research and Publications at HNET, and this is the Art of the Review podcast. I'm Yelena Kalinsky, Managing Editor of HNET Reviews. And this is a podcast where we examine reviewing and criticism as an academic form. This podcast is brought to you by HNET and the University of Central Florida's Center for Humanities and Digital Research. Welcome to the Art of the Review podcast. Hi, welcome to this episode of the Art of the Review. And in this episode, we are going to talk about the peer review process. And this is one of those topics we might return to later on because it's such a huge um, topic for discussion. And we're just going to really handle one element of it in this episode. We're specifically going to talk about the peer review process for publishers. What happens when someone wants to publish a book or, say, a journal article in an academic, uh, with an academic publisher? What's the peer review process? Because like a book review, which we talked about in many episodes, or a film review, or a movie review, um, before this work gets published, it is also reviewed. And we just want to talk a little bit about how that review process is different than a published review process. That's right. Uh, so, Robert, I guess I want to start out by asking you whether you have ever participated in uh, such an internal review, which is called a reader's report, um, for a publisher or for a journal. Yes, I've actually done both journals and book publishers. And I should mention they're both academic journals, academic book publishers. I think I've done maybe one or two with commercial publishers. And they're just slightly different in that they're very much interested in the commercial uh, viability of a book. And so that might be an added question to the scholarly uh, merits or scholarly contribution to a book whereas an academic publisher is less concerned about the um, commercial viability because they're really interested in putting out new scholarship and whether it makes money or not is really um, a latter concern for an academic publisher. So you don't really get those, ask those kinds of questions in the uh, peer review process. But I've done, I've done both journal and I've done um, book publishers, and they're very similar. They give you sort of a criteria uh, to rank the submission. So the criteria could be something like um, accept, reject, ask for revisions. That would mean, you know, you could, you could um, write something up so the person who wrote it could revise it and send it back, that there's some sort of contribution there. The author can kind of shape it up a little bit more. And you could also have something where it's like conditionally accept, but change maybe these one or two things. Or you can even have accept without any revisions, which is the top tier of the peer review process. And then what the publisher will usually do, whether it's a journal or a, a book publisher, will then ask you to give specifics about your ranking. So if you say something like, I advise the publisher to ask the author to revise and resubmit this, then you'd have to sort of list out exactly why you gave that ranking. And usually they give you a prompt, like they'll say, does this submission adhere to an original contribution to the field? Is it like other books that have been published in the field? Um, you know, will people find this book helpful? Why or why not? And they might give you these kind of prompts. And of course, you have the flexibility to add whatever you wish. And so 
what what I think people have to understand, and, and this is what we're trying to emphasize with this specific episode, is this is an internal review, meaning that you know when when someone writes this, they're not writing this with the expectation that a large majority of people will read it. Usually, it's done for internal purposes. So people at the journal or people at the publisher, the, the book publisher will read this, the author will read it, but that's it. No one else will read this. Um, and so, you know, it gives you some sort of flexibility. Basically what it means is there's no uh, copy editor process. We talked in earlier episodes about the copy editor process. So I can tell you probably 100% of the peer review reports I've ever written have had typos and spelling errors because there's no copy editor <laughs> doing that for me. But, of course, it's understood. You know, So when someone reads it and they see a typo or they see a, a misspelling, they don't sort of fret about this. Right? Yeah, but on the other hand, the author receives some very valuable feedback, and that feedback can actually... Um, be taken into account for shaping up the book. Absolutely. And that's one of the things you see different between a published review and then an internal review like we're talking about here, is the purpose of this review is really to communicate with the author. And you're not communicating to this broad audience. You might be communicating to an editorial board or to various editors or specific editors, but inherently you are also communicating with an author. And that sort of, you know, colors the tone of a reader report differently than a published review because you know in a published review you could think about communicating with the author but you don't have to it's not sort of incumbent it's not part of the standards process but the expectation for a reader's report is that you are communicating with the author and so you really want to be civil you want to be constructive it's like part of the process it's like inherent you know like you really want to as a professional scholar, you want to reach out to this person and say, hey, if I think this is not ready to be published, here are the steps you need to take to publish it. And really, it's only in very rare occasions. I have done this on, a, on just a handful of case, occasions where I've said to the publisher that it doesn't merit publication. Um, and those are really sort of unfortunate things to have to write, but they're you know part of the process. But usually, probably you know, 90 to 95% of the time you're writing a reader report where you're saying, hey, this is great, but can you do this, this, or that? And so you really kind of um, have to figure out uh, a voice for your constructive criticism. That's right. You have to find a way to get that criticism through constructively. I should also mention that publishers and presses often have a hard time finding reviewers or getting reviewers to send their reports back in a timely way. It really is a service that people do, and I know that publishers and presses have specific strategies for reaching out to readers, targeting them very specifically, not sending them more than you know one or two manuscripts a year. Um, they have extensive databases of potential reviewers. It's, it's a lot to do to find people to write these reviews. It's a lot of work, um, and it's a, it's a big service. Sure. And, and, you know, book publishers tend to pay reviewers for these types of reviews. Usually it's, it's really a small amount, anywhere from $75 to I think the most I've ever been paid is 200 for a, a reader report. Journals do not. Journals do not pay for these types of reader reports because, you know, they're only reviewing, you know, 30 to 50 page um, submission as opposed to, you know, a 300 to what could be 800 page submission for a book. 
And, but what journals do to circumvent that process, or at least to, to encourage people to review, is they lean on an editorial board. And a lot of times when you open up a, um, an academic journal, you notice on the first page there is the list of who is on the editorial board. And the editorial board is usually responsible for, if not reviewing manuscripts themselves, finding people to review manuscripts. So it's not just up to the single editor of the journal or their staff but they go to the editorial board. And I've been on an editorial board before, and I've, I've, I've been approached not only as part of my responsibility to review manuscripts for the journal, that was part of my duty, but also to find people to review manuscripts for them and, and sort of be a person to kind of lean on someone you might know and say, hey, this is you know a journal I'm involved with. It would really be helpful if you did this for me. And so that kind of creates a greater incentive for a review to come back to a journal because, again, they can't... Um, entice readers with money. So, Robert, you interviewed a director of West Virginia University Press, Derek Krisoff, uh, about this whole process, and he talks about the role of the board and the staff for uh, the press and for journals. So why don't we listen to that interview now? All right, Derek, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. Uh, wonderful to be here. And could you introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, my name is Derek Krisoff, and I'm director at West Virginia University Press. And one of the things we're trying to get to at the center of in this specific episode is to get an understanding of when someone commissions a review for internal purposes, so it's not really for public consumption. And, of course, at academic publishers like yourself, you often get manuscripts, and each manuscript has to go through a review process. So can you tell us a little bit about what that review process is? Yeah, I mean, the first review is just the editor, the acquiring editor's own review of the manuscript. And that's not typically a written review. That's just his or her assessment of whether it seems to have merit, whether it has enough uh, you know, potential to sell to be, to be worth pursuing, whether it fits with the priorities of the press, and whether it helps build the list, which to us would just mean it's the, the sort of thing that, that because it builds on a focus that you've established will help attract other authors working on similar work and make you an attractive house in the, the sub-disciplines that you've identified as being your priorities at a press. Um, that's typically the sort of informal review that an editor, or sometimes a series editor, if it comes in through a series, is doing at the first pass. Then, assuming that, uh, that the manuscript or proposal passes that level of scrutiny, it would go typically to two external peer reviewers. Uh, and an editor would, would usually ask an author for suggestions but not be bound by those suggestions and also ask if there are people who are inappropriate to review it because they just come from different methodological traditions or something like that. Um, and the peer reviewers are usually given prompts. Sometimes those are just sort of generic prompts. Um, you know, please talk about its originality, how up-to-date it is, its sources, that kind of thing. And sometimes an editor will, um, will craft more specific prompts because of particular concerns or questions that he has, he or she has about the manuscript or project um, under consideration. Uh, those reviews, when they come in, are typically shared with the author, with the series editor, if there is a series editor involved, uh, and then will go to other, will be used for other purposes within the press. And it's really, it's meant to be an, an internal uh, mechanism. So those reviews might be shared with the editor's boss, they might be shared with a body made up of other people at the university press, like the marketing director or the press director, so they can weigh in on a project before um, assessing whether to offer a contract. And then, in all cases, at a university press, it will also be shared with a faculty editorial board, which is typically made up of faculty at the university that the press is attached to. Um, 
and, and they will always see reviews. In some cases, they'll also see a portion of the manuscript, but they're there mostly to make sure, obviously, that the reviews are supportive, that the author is taking those reviews seriously, the author would be asked to write a, a written response to those reviews in which he or she talks about, you know, which of the suggestions for revision seem to have merit and which maybe don't, and why those that don't have merit don't have merit, and what kind of pricey for revision he or she imagines in response to those reviews. So the, the, the editorial board, the faculty board, wants to make sure that... Um, that there's good faith engagement on the author's part with the external reviews and uh, that the external reviews are, are fulfilling their purpose, which is to help make the manuscript better. Uh, in most cases, as I said, they're not, the board is not seeing the full manuscript. They're just going on those reviews and some positioning statement from the sponsoring editor, from the acquiring editor. Um, and they're there mostly to make sure that you're sort of following the rules, the board that is, their referees. They want to make sure you haven't gone to somebody's dissertation advisor, for example, to serve as an external referee on the manuscript, as an external reader. Um, and assuming all that uh, seems to be kosher and above board and everybody's happy with the kind of feedback that's being generated by the reviewers, the project is approved, and at that point you'd go to a full contract and the book would be published. And so can you tell me a little bit about how peer review for an academic publisher that produces books would be different than, say, um, one that produces journal articles or something else? Yeah, I don't have a lot of first-hand um, experience with journals. There, there is a small journals program at West Virginia. Some of the previous publishers I've worked for, there were larger ones. My understanding is that that's typically driven less by the staff at the press and more by the journal's own editorial staff, um, which wouldn't be situated in the press. They'd be at university departments in most cases or at uh, learned societies that are sponsoring the journals, that kind of thing. I think typically in part just because of the scale of the enterprise, because journal articles are shorter, they can be reviewed more thoroughly. Um, there, there are just physical limitations on how deep a review you can get on a 400-page uh, book manuscript, whereas with, with journals you can go a little bit deeper. So my understanding is they typically um, get a, a higher degree of scrutiny, um, are reviewed by more people, um, and you'll get more in the way of sort of line-by-line -line edits perhaps or line-by-line -line suggestions from referees on a journal article than you would with a book. That happens with book manuscripts sometimes, but more often the book manuscript feedback from uh, an external reviewer is going to be uh, broader in scale. It's going to be about, in the case of a history book, it's going to be about historiography. Um, there may be some prose considerations or some, you know, it's not unheard of to hear suggestions about, well, does it need another chapter, taking it further into the story or something like that. Um, but it tends to be at that scale rather than the sort of intricate scale that I think journal articles often do uh, receive feedback at. Well, no, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you, Robert. We'll post related links to this episode on the show notes blog at the H Podcast Network, and you can also go there to read more and share your thoughts on this episode.